Hey there, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And whether you're a regular listener or new to our program, we want to wish you a warm welcome. Scope of Practice is a podcast for substance use and mental health professionals designed to bring you information that is less talked about, often even ignored, and challenges the status quo of the industry. My name is Jeffrey Kwame, CEO of the Connecticut Certification Board. Today we're doing something a little bit different than we usually do. We're going to talk to an accomplished clinician, media personality, and subject matter expert, consultant, author, and clinical psychologist, Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter, about her latest book, Aftershock. Dr. Utter comes from the infamous Philadelphia neighborhood of Kensington, and you can see a true-life snapshot of that in her documentary, Utter Nonsense, and as a child experienced an ongoing cycle of traumatic experiences that scarred her soul. These experiences give her a rare insight into how our life experiences and the way we see ourselves impacts our mental health, both positively and negatively. These experiences are documented in her first book, Mainlining Philly, Maintaining Hope and Resisting Drug Addiction, released in 2020. She joins us today to talk about her new book, Aftershock, written to help individuals identify and understand how we respond to challenging experiences that shake up our lives weeks or months after a traumatic event has occurred. Her expertise has captured the attention of significant media outlets in both the Philadelphia region and nationally, including appearances on Fox Business, USA Today, Insider, MSN, Health.com, Bustle, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Needless to say, we are incredibly grateful and honored to have her join the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Rudder. Thank you so much for having me, Jeffrey. I appreciate it. It's so weird when people get to read your intro, you're like, well, I did all that stuff. But no, thank you so much for having me. I'm actually really excited to be here and to talk with you today. Like I said, we've talked before. I said it was nice sharing ideas and thoughts. So to me, this is just a natural honor. This is more of a conversation than like a an interview, a press interview to move a product, whatever. So I think this is great. So let me start out with this. As professionals in the field, we read a lot of material, and usually it's mostly research or it's clinically based. However, despite your credentials and your ability to write that that type of material, you went in a different direction with Aftershock. Can you talk about who the book is directed to and the impetus for writing it? So with Aftershock, and kind of to your point, yes, clinically, I read a lot of academic research and I still treat clients in practice. And what would bother me a lot is when I would be talking with someone outside of a DSM-5 diagnosis or not, I felt like we spend a lot of time pathologizing. So when somebody comes in front of us and they present, we're trying to figure out, you know, what the ICD-10 or DSM-5 code is. We're looking at them and we're saying, okay, you fit all this criteria for major depressive disorder. You fit all this criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And it bothered me because there are a lot of shitty things that people go through that are traumatic in nature. They may not meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD or major depressive disorder, but nonetheless, they still struggle psychologically and they're still going through a really rough time. So I wanted to write the book to actually not pathologize, to help folks understand that you don't have to be severely mentally ill to experience and have psychological pain. So I wanted to kind of let the reader know that it's okay not to be okay sometimes because we're all going to go through crappy things by the sheer nature of being human. But at the same time, I also wanted to offer guidance. Okay, so now you're somebody that's going through a terrible breakup. PTSD isn't necessary. You're still feeling bad. You don't know what those symptoms are because they may be delayed weeks or months later, number one. So you don't know how to recognize that that's probably why you're feeling bad. And then number two, 
now I want to talk to someone or can I talk to someone or my problem's big enough to talk to someone and oh crap, now what do I do next? Like, what is this person going to do? Are they going to lie me down on the couch and analyze me? So I kind of just wanted to normalize and not pathologize some really crappy things that happen and then guide the reader through what happens next when you do seek mental health treatment and let them know that it's okay to seek mental health treatment. It's not just reserved for folks that have what we would consider like a serious psychopathology. And I think that it's part of the natural way our brain works. If you get bit by a dog, your brain is going to create a fear for dogs and you're going to stay away. We accept that as being normal until it's something that we can pathologize. And I think that many in the field kind of get off on that pathologizing. And instead of just saying, this is a human being right in front of me. And you talk in the book about, despite all the letters and things after our names, that's a human being that's sitting in front of us. We've got to remember that. Do you ever think too, like when you think back to your clinical practice days, I know like sometimes as someone's talking and you probably know what's going on with them clinically, we're not giving ourselves time to relax ourselves because we're helpers. We want to do a good job and we want to help them, but sometimes we're not in the moment. Like we're thinking about what we can do to help them next Mm -hmm. instead of just sitting there and being with them. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves to help. And I think that impacts our clinical work too, because we're thinking about what we should be doing or what we could be doing. And we're kind of like not just sitting with that person and really trying to join them. So that's another thing too. Like we got to be a little bit nicer to ourselves as mental health professionals Mm. and just try to sit there, be with the person and make that human connection first and foremost, so that we can do the work that we were trained to do. I agree. And I think we can do that when we look at emotional intelligence and kind of paying attention to what's going on. And then two words that I hate, self-care, because they've been bastardized so much to be a product as opposed to something that comes from within us. We have to practice self-care 24-7 and not necessarily do it with a massage or a cruise. Well, those are great, but those are events. Those aren't things that come from inside us. And so we are tough on ourselves and, and it comes out when we talk to clients. So the title itself, I like it because it's grabbing. It grabs you. Aftershock. For the purposes of the book, how did you describe it? the term aftershock. I have a full disclosure here. I mean, I do all of the writing, but I have an excellent editor that I personally work with, right? So we're talking about the book and we're talking about the topic and this delayed trauma response and trauma as a general term, not again as a pathology. And he's like, it's almost like an aftershock. Like it kind of sneaks up on them later. And we're like, yes. So he, in talking with him, we came up with that title kind of together, more so him, because he said aftershock. And I'm like, that's it. It's like an aftershock. It sneaks up on you later. Like you think, perfect example, you go through a terrible divorce. And during the divorce process, it's almost like stages of grief. You might have denial, anger, depression. You know, you go through all that. And you've been running on adrenaline for so long. It's a year or six months later after that person has left your life and you go through the whole phase. You're dating everybody, you're doing this, Mm -hmm. you're doing that, you're hanging out, you're reinventing yourself. But then you realize one morning you get up and you don't feel well. You don't feel well mentally. You you just feel like you've been beat up and you don't know why because this happened six months ago. So that's kind of where the aftershock element comes because it's like you're getting like a double whammy. The trauma of it happening 
and then processing that thinking you've gotten over it because you've done some cool things and you've kind of reinvented yourself, but then realizing that like some other stuff, mental health stuff, you know, your sleep schedule, irritability, maybe not feeling super motivated is kind of sneaking back up and you don't know why. That's the aftershock. And I think that's a great way to to describe it and kudos to your editor. What a great job. To me, that normalizes it. It doesn't, it's not in clinical terms and it shows how it does sneak up on you. You may not even realize it at the time, but for some reason it comes up and it kicks you in the ass and, oh, now I really need to pay attention to what's going on, which kind of leads me to where I'm headed next. And we spoke about this briefly offline. It's when I read the book, it's an easy read. I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just something you can sit with and say, hey, I'm, I'm getting into this. It took me a while to get through it because there was some aftershock while I was reading. So the part of me looked at it from as a professional and looked at it objectively and saying, makes perfect sense, great to use, perfect for clients to read, help someone understand. But then I couldn't forget my past, the subjective piece that although I have dealt with it and although things come up, reading it did bring up little snapshots of my life. And I that would I said, oh, yeah, that was difficult. For mm-hmm. me, although it had a, a somewhat of an emotional reaction, it didn't overcome me, but it was like, oh, yeah, there was a feeling of sadness. And so based on our previous conversation together, I'm sure you can tell which side struck me more. So I ask this question in two ways is how can we as professionals use the book with our clients, but also use the book for our own personal ways to help us not only cope and deal, but to connect better with those clients? The first part of the question is definitely easier. So again, I think the book is written in layman's, like you're talking to a friend type terms. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not, we're not getting super clinical because what I feel like we fail to do as a profession, people kind of idealize what it is that we do. They have this weird misconception of what we do. And I always, I hate when like, oh, do you guys ask all day long? How do you feel? So how does that make you feel? And, you know, there's so much more to what we do. So I wanted folks to read the book to get more insight into their own psyche. And what I did to help them is I used actual case conceptualizations, stories, examples, Mm -hmm. because it's one thing to say you're having a delayed trauma response and aftershock. It's another thing to share a story that demonstrates what that looks like. So the stories of people is what I feel will really afford somebody who's not trained an opportunity to kind of tune into themselves because they're going to hear these different stories, these different quote unquote traumas or life traumas. And they're going to say, shit, I've been through something like that. Or that's exactly how I felt when I graduated college and now I'm trying to get a job. Or that's exactly how I felt when my parents divorced. It's things like that, that I'm hoping that the reader kind of clues into to describe what we often know as a delayed trauma response. So that's kind of the first part. The stories in there are designed to keep the interest, but most importantly, help them learn how to take a psychological concept or the experience of psychological pain and put it to life on pages so that they can then relate to it themselves. It might help them relate themselves. They're exposed to the idea, so to speak, but then yes. they can see it in practice with a real life experience of something that's happened to somebody. And I applaud those who were allowed you to share their experiences in the book. I think that that's in itself is a difficult and sometimes trauma raising issue. 
so this kind of goes into the second part of your question, which was like a parallel process, like what came up for me or what comes up for clinicians, you know, mm-hmm. mental health providers when when they're learning or hearing about other people's trauma. Is that kind of the, yeah, the second and how, part? You know, how do we manage that kind of vicarious trauma to take care of ourselves? But then also it can give us a little more insight and empathy when we work with clients. Is that kind of a, a line that you see or that was not even a thought at the time? I feel like it was definitely a line because the stories, even though they're not like they were changed, a lot of the stories were changed to protect the anonymity of Mm -hmm. people. But the premise, you know, the concept was there. They impacted me. So the stories that I share are ones that, you know, because I've seen a lot of people are ones that I kind of carry with me or that I think about. So there is a parallel process that takes place. You know, if you're trained psychoanalytically, mm-hmm. counter-transference. Right. So I experience counter-transference all the time when I'm working with a patient and I start to feel or have these emotions or feelings within myself mm-hmm. outside of just the fact that it's really sad or traumatic that they experienced X, Y, Z. What's super cool, and I did this for the book and before I used to be afraid of it, but with my training, because I was trained psychoanalytically, mm-hmm. I kind of walk towards it is I pay attention to my own feelings. And if I'm feeling a certain way while we're in session, intuitively, it helps to guide me clinically. So it really helps my work because even though I may not have experienced exactly what they experienced, but I'm feeling anxious because my client is anxious, it kind of helps me stay in touch and stay with them because it may be pulling a time for me when I was anxious and I can share that. So I will self-disclose sometimes to help. So really, a lot of it has really helped me because I have processed my trauma because I have my own therapist. So let's put that Mm -hmm. out there too. All good therapists have their own therapist. Mm -hmm. But when I'm starting to feel some type of way and I'm starting to feel impacted when I'm in session, I will share that out loud with my client. And I will use that in an appropriate way to guide the therapy. I'm not sharing, oh, I'm really sad because I want to make them feel sad. No, you never want to do that. I'm sharing this because this is how you're saying makes me feel. I'm wondering if you've given yourself a chance to feel how your story's making me feel. Are you in touch with yourself? Mm -hmm. So I really use it as more of a tool that's helped me as opposed to being afraid of it. I actually did consultation the other day with with another colleague and they were having significant counter-transference about a patient or a client that they were seeing that reminded them of their mother in a negative way. So I said, we, got two, we have two choices here. We can continue to dig in on that and we can see if that's going to afford you to do good work with this client. And then also keep in mind too, if it's not, If your emotions are getting the best of your work, then we have to gently remind ourselves that we're human. We don't have to take on every single client that presents. And it's okay to coordinate a referral if your own stuff is impacting your ability to do good work with a client. And I think we have to remind ourselves of that and give ourselves credit and give ourselves permission to refer if we're struggling because just because they showed up on our caseload doesn't mean they have to live there forever if we feel like we can't do good work for them. And I think you hit on something that's a big deal for me, and I actually train on it. I love to talk about it. I love to talk about counter-transference and managing it and how to use that in session as you know, as a supervisor talking to supervisees. I've interviewed someone on this podcast. How do we as supervisors manage the counter-transference that we can see that our, those in our charge are being talked a lot about? Actually, with a gentleman from Philly who was teaching at Drexel, taught me a lot about counter-transference and how to use it 
clinically. So I think you're on to something with that. I think it's, to me, it's very important. We don't talk enough about it. We don't normalize it. So partly I see kind of your person reading the book that is not a professional is saying, oh, this looks a lot like me. I, I understand. But when a professional reads it and says, oh, I'm having some sort of response to this, a reminder that it could be an issue that could pop up for counter-transference mm-hmm. for the client. So be aware, be ready to use it. And it's okay to say, when I hear the story, you're saying, I'm feeling very scared right yes. now. Because it's in the moment. It's very true. It's not, well, 20 years ago, I experienced this. It's effective of putting out what's happening and, and disclosing appropriately in the moment. Yeah. And I think it helps to ground them because I remember in my own therapy, I would regurgitate. I don't know if you've, like, I would just talk about this, my life, traumatic things. And there's not a ton of affect because I'm literally giving you a history. And sometimes you know, that's not necessarily a good thing. So sometimes you want to slow them down and say, let's talk about that. This is how I'm feeling. Like, like let me check in with you. How are you feeling mm-hmm. as you're sharing this with me? And it could be very helpful because they might not even be aware or tuned in. So I, I just find it very beneficial to note it. And then also too, like, again, we're humans. We make mistakes. We're not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect session. It's a collaboration. It's dynamic. And we're going to make a misstep here or there or say something that we wish we didn't say, but that's part of the process. Really, it's about the rapport. And you want this person to be safe and not judged with you so that you guys can do the work together. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, counter-transparency is something that I feel like is healthy to talk about. And it can be helpful for both people. A couple of things that you wrote in the book that just simple one single lines that really had a big impact on kind of the way that I perceived what was going on and, and read the book and the way we do things in the field. Let me start with the first one. Just one simple sentence. Keep in mind that the way an event affects us and the severity varies. This really almost flies in the face of the way the SUD field focuses on trauma. If the person seeking care understands that something can happen, I can have a response and it can be different every time or different based on the response. Shouldn't the professional, what we call or what is described as trauma-informed for professionals has become pathology mining. So how do we as professionals learn from our clients and say that, oh yeah, this bothered me for a couple of days, but then I got over it instead of digging at it and trying to look for the bigger traumatic experience in it. Because we're trained, right? Because you think about it, like even when we're trained in psychopathology, we're looking at really significant cases, right? So we're trying to, and I'll share a personal story. Mm -hmm. It was really brought to life for me. I was in my doctoral program. I was done. I was studying for the EPPP, which is the exam from hell. It's a licensure exam for psychologists. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, four and a half hour long. It's terrible. I had very, very, very bad test anxiety. I had sat for it once, didn't even finish the damn thing because I timed out because my anxiety was so bad. I couldn't get through the questions. So I'm like, okay, I got to go talk to someone to help me get past this anxiety that I can't do this. So I sit down across from a licensed psychologist and she's trained in family systems, which is fine. I'm family systems and psychoanalysis psycho, uh, and psychodynamic. So she starts to do a genogram. And if you read anything about my family or you watch that, my family is a hot, hot, hot mess. Sisters <laughs> and brothers from this one and steps. And so just to get through the goddamn genogram took more than a session. My referral. I am there for test anxiety. I need some cognitive behavioral therapy. Hook a sister up so I can get through the exam. 
she got stuck. She got stuck, Jeffrey. She was stuck on my family and wanted to dig into my trauma. I was not there for that. And what happened? I ended up not going back to her because I didn't feel like she was hearing me. She wasn't meeting me where I was. So even though somebody sitting across from you is may have an OUD diagnosis and maybe they've gone through significant trauma because they were out on Kensington Avenue prostituting themselves and got beat up or something terrible happened to them you know, while you're listening to their story. But when they're there talking to you, they're there talking to you at that point because they're trying to get custody back of their three-year-old son. It is not our job to intervene, intersect, because we know that that person had a significant trauma when they were Mm -hmm. beat up, when they were prostituting. That person's not going there with me right now. We're going down the road of how hurt she is because she wants to get custody back of her son. So just because it's traumatic, and I don't mean to say just because, Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that that's where we're at. We might get there. But right now in this session, we're talking about how impacted this person is because they can't get custody of their child. So it's so important to A, meet them where they are, not to pathologize and not to dismiss either because I've noticed things because we see so much. We've seen so much devastation. We see so much sadness that if somebody ends up coming to me because they're an empty nester, their last child left to go away to college and they're having a really hard time, that's traumatic for them. So we have to meet them and not judge. We're not the trauma judges. What's traumatic, what's not? It's all relative. And the main thing is you have to be in that room with that person And you have to meet them where they are, no matter how interesting or conceptually their story is, even though we want to tease it apart, want to dig it apart, want to analyze it. If they're not there, we can't jump, especially in the beginning, because the first thing we have to do is build rapport and trust. And you're not doing that if you're jumping and they're not there. That's not cool. And it really gives us a very bad rap. And that ties into the second line in the book about meeting clients where they're at and always doing that. And I actually do a training about the credibility issues in our field called meeting clients where they're at and other fairy tales. We often demand that the client, we say we meet, we're going to meet the client where they're at, but it's a bumper sticker. It's not necessarily true when we say, well, to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do that. And we really think you should be here and you should be doing this and making amends and whatever, instead of saying, tell me what it's like, the difference with no kids in the house. Tell right. me what it's like to be in it. What are you experiencing right now? For them, that's what they want. And for us, there's nobility in that. But we think it's not noble to do that. But <laughs> I want you to, when you were just talking about dealing with the things, I want to want you to hold on. This is a word I want to throw by you. But I do want to talk about something else you said, and it was individuals with trauma can unconsciously find comfort in the devil that they know. I love this because it brings up so much for me. Can you talk about kind of what, what that means for you in the book? My mind was in a couple of different places, but with that particular saying, so the devil that you know, when I relate that back to recovery in any mental health capacity from the outside, from people that aren't the person who has struggled with the trauma, we're like, why don't they want to get better? Like, why does she keep on dating the same type of person who keeps putting her down? who keeps abusing her? Or why don't they want to get sober? Like they have an opportunity that we finally got a bed. Why don't they want to? And sometimes when you have been conditioned and when you have experienced complex trauma, sometimes it's easier to sit and to be with the devil that you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's continuing to use or whether it's continuing to re-traumatize yourself because you don't know any better 
And sometimes what the better is, is scary. It's very, very scary. And then on top of that, if you're somebody who has experienced significant trauma and you have mental health concerns, most of the time your internal monologue is your own worst enemy. So you already feel like a worthless piece of garbage. You don't feel like you're worth it. So it's kind of like a reinforcing wheel. Like I'm just going to stay stuck because that's more comfortable than unsticking myself and getting better because A, that's scary. And B, I don't know if I can handle it. And do I even deserve it? I'm such a total POS because of all the nasty shit I've done in my addiction that like, who's going to get like, why do I even want to give myself a chance? Because in my heart, it could be subconsciously, I feel like I don't deserve one. So we stay stuck because it's more comfortable, even though to the outside world, being stuck is crazy. It's insane. Why would you do that? You see it play out in media things in scent of a woman. Al Pacino's at his brother's house and is acting like a total idiot. And then when he's, he's leaving, he's his brother hugging. He whispers to him, I'm no effing good. So understanding that this is my behavior, but it's all I know. I'm just right. not good. So I, if people haven't seen the movie, well, they should see it. But yes, it's, that's a great it's really a recognition of I'm going to do these behaviors because it's my life. It's what I'm comfortable with. I know how to survive. And with that survival, I want to go back to the other things that you were talking about, meeting people where they're at. And we spend a lot of time digging into trauma. We don't spend as much time with resilience. Mm. Matter of fact, the field seems like it's pushing resilience away. For an individual to survive emotionally, even if the coping skills are unhealthy, to survive these traumatic experiences, that's resilience. They're bouncing back. And I think that that if we focused on that, if we looked at it from a strength, it's going to help clients instead of just saying, well, you've got this and you got this and saying, wow, you're able to do this over and over, but still here you are in this. You go to work every day. You want to care for your kids. And I think the book tells clients, tells people with issues, you are resilient. Picking up this book and reading it is a resilient act yes. because you're wanting to, to look at something different. Let's talk about resilience a little bit, I guess. I feel like whether you're in the field or not, there's a lot of interest and people are enamored with psychology, but it's all the psychopathology stuff. It's it's all the bad. And that has a lot to do with social psych because for entertainment, like look at our entertainment platforms, you know, serial killers, you know, it's all the bad and the ugly. And that's oh, I see you watch the ID channel as well yes, as I do. I yeah. do. Yeah. Like, and even like, even like TLC, for example. 90 day fiance, all these things. It's a social comparison. And what people want to see, they want to compare down like, oh, I'm better. Oh, I thought my relationship was screwed up. Girl, look at her like that. She is a hot mess. So I think we've done a great job in quotes of pathologizing everything because it's interesting. We want to know why they do what they do. But then we drop the ball. Like, what about the other side? So people talk about being victimized and these terrible things that happen to them. But like, let's talk about the come up and the come up is post-traumatic growth. And Tadeshi and Calhoun, they don't get enough credit for post-traumatic growth because out of post-traumatic growth, what is born is resilience and people that, that have survived. And though some of their, like you say, some of their coping strategies may not be that great, they still have come out of it. A perfect example is, you know, social media. I love it and I hate it, but dark humor. I couldn't, there's some dark humor, right? You got, there's some dark humor in the book where we're laughing at some pretty tragic things. And there's some other people that don't know us, right? When I say us, I mean all of us who use dark humor. That point, how can you be so heartless? You know, how can you talk like that? How can you do, listen, that's a healthy coping strategy. That's a sign of resilience. So if you're laughing about your trauma, you go. 
you go because that's actually a healthy coping strategy because are you going to laugh and you're going to try to get through it with whoever's with you or are you going to kind of fold in on yourself and let it kind of just take you permanently down. So to your point, we don't talk a lot about what those coping skills look like. And dark humor gets a bad rap, for example, and Mm -hmm. it's actually considered a healthy coping strategy. I actually have a friend in North Carolina that we know a lot about each other's trauma history and things. And whenever we talk, at least once in the conversation, one of us will say to the other, well, you need to say this. And it's like an explanation of their trauma that's completely inappropriate. And we'll laugh at each other because we allow each other to laugh at at each other's trauma because we know that it's not a personal attack. It's just kind of a coping. I think we do. And as a field, we want to pathologize and get focused on on, instead of just saying, man, you are resilient enough that you're continuing to work through this. It may not be the best way to do it, but let's take that drive you have and use it. I have a colleague in Los Angeles, Dr. Robert Weiss, who refuses to use the word codependent. He calls it pro-dependent. says, how can we punish a family for doing something because they care? Instead of saying, let's try to find a better way to show you care that's healthier and safer for you. Mm-hmm. Instead of criticizing them and saying, you're in, oh, you're too codependent, saying, let's find a way to make this work. I actually really like that. I'll send you the stuff. Because the person, that family member is actually is invested. They're trying to figure it out. So, and again, when we talk about coping skills, coping skills look different for a lot of people. One of them, for example, can be dark humor. Another way that that people cope and manage is just learning how to sit, learning how to sit with the discomfort. And I don't mean forever. I mean, if you're having a shitty day, sitting down and saying, okay, I'm having a shitty moment. I'm having a shitty day right now. Let me just kind of sit with it and let me check in with myself and see kind of what I can do to kind of just get through this day and maybe make it a little bit better for myself. That's the other thing that I don't think we do as a society. We don't accept. We constantly feel like things have to be okay all the time. Everyone has to be getting along all the time. I have to be in a decent mood. No, you don't. So I think another coping mechanism that we don't talk about is accepting accepting that you're going to have shitty days sometimes. And guess what? It's totally okay. So things, they're small things, but they're huge. And that demonstrates that you're trying your best and it's a healthy coping strategy. Just the fact that you got through the day and stayed out of jail or didn't pick up, Mm -hmm. that's a good thing. And we have to give ourselves some credit for that. Just kind of one final thought that just popped up is a lot of what you're talking about jumps in my head. I think of stigma, stigma, stigma. But then I I have to catch myself because to me, stigma is the struggle of the privileged. Discrimination is the struggle of those without privilege. One of the things that it's easier for folks that have some resources to find therapy and deal with the stigma, although that's difficult. A lot of people without the resources can't even find the help that they need. It's not accessible to them. So I think one of the things I like to focus on is yeah, making I, it I accessible. Mean, I, yeah. We could talk for hours about privilege and stigma and and discrimination and lack of privilege, but it's just something that's there that we need to be aware of and try to change. And here's the thing, like as far as stigma goes, I felt it. I don't know if you felt it, but I have felt it growing up in the household that I did with parents who struggled really bad with addiction and with mental health concerns that it wasn't me, but I still felt that stigma and that shame because we do such a poor job as a society 
pointing the finger, you know, like if somebody's an addiction, they're an addict, and then all mm-hmm. the terrible things that go along with that, or if they're struggling with mental health concerns, oh, you know, they got to get with, they're so weak-minded, they need to get it together. So that's the other thing. I'm glad you brought that up, that the book does. Mental health treatment, talking to a therapist. And again, for people that can't afford it or don't have, especially if you're young, if you're in college, if you're in high school, you have free services right there. You have a guidance counselor there. You have the school counseling center. There's the Open Path Collective. You know, it's a sliding scale. It's a huge organization across the country where you can tap into services. But I I think I just want people to start to feel comfortable with the notion of seeking help and mm-hmm. understanding that even if you're not insured, I wasn't insured a lot as a kid. We didn't have any money, but albeit I was in touch with my school services. And even now that I'm in private practice and I have, you know, I have a license, I do pro bono work. So ask if you don't have the money, if you don't have the insurance and you still want to seek treatment, ask because we will take on cases or at least we should ethically take on a case or two where you know folks aren't paying the full rate and understand your problems don't have to meet diagnostic criteria mm-hmm. in our manual you don't have to be going through this big huge severe thing if you're not feeling like yourself if you're having a little bit of an aftershock after something crappy happened to you the death of a partner divorce IVF didn't work out whatever talk to someone and I think the book does a great job of that as you outlined some of the people, the non at, at your schools, when you said you yeah. didn't feel like you fit in and just accessing the resources that are there. And I think today there's even more resources available yeah. than when we were younger because there's much more of a focus on it. Just as we close, is there anything that you'd like to add to the listeners? Anything you'd like to say to close out with? I think the main thing is if this podcast is for people who are practitioners and Mm -hmm. the one thing that I get asked when it comes to what advice do you have for other people in the field? And the advice is you don't know it all. And you're never going to know it all, no matter how many books you read and how many CEs you take. Every patient's different, even though their stories may be similar. Every patient's different because every person's different. And I think just remaining humble, remaining open to learn, and just taking a genuine interest in listening to someone can take us a lot further than any textbook or program or CE. So I guess that's just a little bit of, oh, and take care and please take care of Mm -hmm. yourself. Please take care of yourself because we are no good if we're absolute train wrecks. It's okay if we're a little bit on the train wreck side because that's what makes us good, good clinicians. But please, please take care of yourself as best as you can so that you can continue to do the good work that you do. Just on that, I think the more that I've learned, the more I realize how much I don't know. Exactly. Um, so it kind of seems like it's the opposite, but it's really a dialectic there. The more you know, the less you recognize you know. Yes. The book is Aftershock. I ordered mine, pre-ordered it. I got it on Amazon. I'll put the links on the advertisement for this. It's a great book. I recommend that clinicians keep copies in their office for clients. It can be very helpful for clients experiencing and something to use as a clinical tool. The author and our guest is Dr. Jerry Lynn Utter from Philadelphia. Dr. Order, thank you very much for spending time with us. I look forward to staying connected with you and enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks so much, Jeffrey. This was awesome. Thanks so much.